Hey folks, welcome to the last of six episodes of the spring season of 2021 for the podcast. This final episode uh, brings my uh, Lukumi elder to uh, discuss some of the stuff about Arisha practice. Lots of people have a lot of curiosity these days about that, so I thought I would uh, go straight to the source where I have learned much of the things that I know about it. Um, and, you know, as we're wrapping up this season, we'll be back in October with uh, six new episodes in the fall and then again in uh, the winter with another six-episode season. Uh, I would remind folks that uh, if you are interested and available to support the podcast, to check out the links to buy me a coffee uh, or for PayPal and e-transfer uh, through the websites in the show notes. Uh, for this episode, that would be just dandy. I appreciate the support. Uh, this also supports accessibility for the podcast through transcriptions and my work and energy in doing this as well. So please go give it a look. And if you can, uh, can pitch in, then please do pitch in. All right. Uh, that's it. On with the show. of the Hermit's Land podcast. I'm here today with uh, Miguel Ramos. Uh, and uh, Miguel Ramos is uh, Oriete, uh, that is uh, an elder and a priest in the Orisha tradition known as Lukumi. Uh, and they happen to also be my elder, which is part of what we're, why we're here and what we're going to talk about. Um, and I've been wanting to have them on the show for a while because I know people are really interested in traditional uh, African diasporic religions or ATRs and uh, you know Oba Ilari Oba as he's known in the tradition is a person who's got a lot of experience in a lot of different ways and always has something really interesting to say about stuff so for folks who aren't familiar with you Willie you know um, who are you what, what, what's your background oh that's complicated yeah good morning thank you for having me I appreciate the opportunity uh, I was born in Cuba uh migrated to the U.S., uh, New York in particular, uh, when I was seven years old. Grew up in that in Brooklyn, of all places, and was ordained in Brooklyn. I was initiated into Shango at the age of 13 in Brooklyn. Uh, difficult situation because I was not initiated because I wanted to be. I, uh, actually, I always say that I was forced into the tradition. It was either come down to the house and prepare for the ceremony or have uh, my father break my stickball bat over my head in front of my friends. So, you know, I said, all right, you know, let me go down. Of course, he wasn't going to do that, but that was the threat, right? You know, Cubans can be a little exaggerated. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, I was ordained at the age of 13. Uh, my house was referred to in Brooklyn as the voodoo house because it was the place where my father did countless ceremonies. My father died uh, with over 60 years as a priest, functioning priest. So I was exposed to the culture from the womb, I imagine, right? My mother was also in the religion. On, my, on both my paternal and maternal side, I was, uh, we, I was born into the tradition. Uh, in the late 70s, I moved to Puerto Rico 
uh, where I think I learned things that I could not have learned in New York, especially because of the tropical climate there. I became more familiar with plants, which in New York we had to pick up in botanicas and little paper bags that were always dry and were not. And you know, the value of plants in our tradition is high. Mm -hmm. um, I lived in Puerto Rico for about seven years and then uh, about in 84, I finally moved to Miami where I've been for the past, uh, what, 30 some odd years, almost 40 years already. Uh, and Miami has become my home. Uh, and I like to refer to it as my temporary home because like all Cubans from my generation, we lived that Cubastalgia, as I call it, the desire to return to this mythical island that no longer exists. Nonetheless, I still would like to return home, open quote, close quote, at some point in my life. It's interesting the idea of wanting to return home. You know, I think about what I remember before I was seven years old, and it's not very much, right? Right. You know, so. But my generation, we were all raised because we were, I, I was, with the initial groups that came to, to the United States, we were all raised with the idea, uh, raised to believe that the Cuban thing was going to be a very short-lived experience, like every other revolution before that, or every other political issue in the island before that, and that we'd be back home soon. So we were, I was, I always refer to my uh, socialization as being uh, brought up in Brooklyn outside the house and in Cuba inside the house, right? Uh, and I think every immigrant goes through processes of that sort, especially first generation. Yeah, yeah, makes sense, right? And yet here we are many years later and the, the revolution such, such as it is continues, right? Uh, yeah, let's call it that. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, for sure. Um, one of the things that I think is, is really interesting about your experience um, is that you've made a lot of inroads into a lot of different places where the religion exists, right? You're, you're deeply connected to New York City. You obviously have deep roots in Miami. You spent all that time in Puerto Rico. I know you've been to Brazil often, uh, as well as your time in Cuba and your uh, adventures not too long ago uh, in Nigeria as well, right? Right. So, so I'm curious, um, what's it like for you to see these, see this sort of traditions in different ways, in different places, or are they that different? Well, it is an eye opener because go, uh, my return home to Yoruba land, uh, and especially my most recent trip, which was to Egbadu, which is the region from where Lukumi tradition primarily originates. We have two. Uh, points of origin, Eduardo and Oyo, uh, which were the most influential ethnic groups in Cuba. Um, that return home was very symbolic, very interesting, because when uh, my first trip to Yoruba land was to Ife, I did not feel at home in Ife. I could not identify with Ife as I identified with uh, Eduardo. Uh, and I have not been to Oyo yet, which is the next uh, stop on my uh, journey. Um, but in Egbado, I was able to see the traditions that many of the traditions that we maintain or many links to the traditions that we maintain on this side of the world. In Brazil, I was also able to see a lot of that and more so than I was able to see in Africa. And I attribute that to the historical circumstance that brought the 
people who at that point in time in Cuba were known as Lucumi and in Brazil were known as Jeje or Nagol, depending on whether they were from ancient Dahomey or, uh, uh, or Yerba land. Um, people who had more in common because of the time period that they were sharing, right? So our traditions in Cuba and Brazil are not all that remotely different from each other. I saw greater similarities with the Brazilian practices than I saw in Yoruba land. But let me just always add that little but there. Uh, I still need to do further research and spend more time in Yoruba land in Eduardo and in Oyo to get a greater understanding. But at this point in time, I was definitely able to establish links and understand some of the processes, some of the changes, right? And as, as, as well as some of the... Um, Traditions that we may preserve that are possibly older than what is practiced in Yoruba land today, because contrary to the belief of the a good majority of people, traditions evolve. No one can tell me that Yoruba religion as practiced today is the same practice, is practiced identically to how it was practiced in the 19th century. It's impossible. Culture evolves. So that means changes. Uh, the religion evolved or the practices so the way of life because this is not a religion this is a spirituality and a way of life uh the, the way of life evolved on three different continents in three different directions affected by the historical circumstances that it encountered in its process in its journey so we see different evolutions in africa different evolutions in cuba and different evolutions in brazil and add to that trinidad and tobago in, in the caribbean as well uh, where the traditions had to respond to the pressures of the society in which they were replanted. So definitely there's transformation, but there's also, there has to be uh, a similarity or else, you know, everything would be questionable. Yeah. So, so I, have been, I have been able to pick up on a lot, I believe, especially in Brazil and understand our connections, what makes us so similar as a people so that we can focus on our similarities and not on our differences. Mm -hmm. So uh, for, for folks who, who are listening to Willie talk here, you might notice that he sounds like a historian and that's because he is a historian, you know, and has spent a lot of time looking at these things and studying uh, and talking to elders, especially in Cuba, uh, you know, and so on. Um, so, and, and, so this idea, really what you're kind of saying is um, through, through the enslavement and, and, the, and the diasporic and the movement of slaves to the Caribbean and South America and all these places, a pocket of time where all those people came from sort of serves as a bit of a, a different starting point because that, that those people in Africa, their, their lives moved in a certain direction and culture evolved and so on. And then those people in the different homes in the diaspora for these traditions uh, evolved in different ways or changed in different ways because of the cultures there, because of the needs of the, the people and so on. Is that what you're that is at? That is definitely true. Um, again, the factors are many, right? But the principal, uh, 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 the, the most dominant colonial power in, in, in Yoruba land in particular were the British. Right. So you see elements that were molded, right, and made to fit around the British impositions. And, and, and I always bring up the perfect example of, of this in, in, in the liquor that is consumed, right? Okay. In Yoruba land, for rituals, 
they use gin or schnapps. Okay. Right? British by right? Uh, in Cuba and Brazil, we use aguardiente or cachaça, aka fire water, right? Which yeah. is overproof rum. Okay. So all of these are products that were introduced into the practices, right, from foreign cultures. God knows what the original loti was or the original liquor uh, use was. Uh, we have mentioned in the literature about uh, uh, palm wine, and we have mentioned in the literature of uh, a shekete uh, wine, which was a wine made out of Guinea corn in Yoruba land and a, a corn in, in Cuba. Uh, so maybe that was the original source. But that's a perfect example, right? We see how each culture influenced the tradition. We also see there's, a, there's a, this great criticism about syncretism in the Americas. Mm -hmm. Uh, syncretism was a strategy, no doubt, right? Uh, where the Africans, not only the Yoruba, Africans merged their beliefs or their beliefs were coupled with uh, primarily Catholicism, right? The evidence is very strong in support of the notion that syncretism did not originate in the Americas. Instead, syncretism already traveled with the Africans from the, the continent to the, to the New World. Uh, the evidence is very strong for Congo, which is the region where this process probably began, but yet syncretism is normal for human culture in general, right? <clears throat> but syncretism with Catholicism may have originated in the Congo as early as the 15th century. With, with the... <laughs> With the Catholics or with whomever was was there. With the Catholicism, actually. Yeah. With Catholicism, the first uh, Christianity, the first form of Christianity that was present in West Africa or the West African coast was Catholicism. When the Portuguese arrived and established the first church, made arrangements with the Congos, uh, the people that we know in Cuba as Congos, uh, um, and established a church there. The, the, the very first church in in the uh, in Africa. The second was established in in, uh, in Benin which is uh, uh, the region of Dahomey and very close to Yoruba land. So this, this idea of, of understanding different cultural approaches to the divine, different uh, uh, views of the divine was not uncommon. It came from Africa. Afri as a matter of fact, Africans, mo most African people believe in the adoption and the incorporation of other traditions, other beliefs, other deities, and so on and so forth. They, they ex many of the pantheons in Yoruba land and Dahomey expanded because of that notion because of what is what we call ashe, the belief in the presence of divine energy in anything and everything that exists in the universe. So if your form or your approach to the divine uh, works and is valid and you know, it's, it's uh, the, the deity that you worship is valid and then it's, it's a form to access the divine. Well, you know what, bring it on. We, we will worship that too. We will accept it's inherently that. Inherently practical, right? There's a very basically, practical. Basically, basically, right? Inclusivistic in nature, right? Not exclusivistic like Judeo Christianity and Islam, right? We don't have the exclusive rights to God, right? We don't have the exclusive rights to the divine. So, this, this facilitated what I see as the syncretic process in Cuba, in Brazil, in Haitian Vodun in Trinidad and Tobago with the Shango uh, uh, traditions there, because there was already a basis for understanding other cultures and other cultural approaches to the divine, right? And other religious approaches to the divine. It, it was not foreign to them. 
So when when they they were forcibly baptized, right? When they threw that holy water over them on the ship, that was the baptism ceremony. Uh, uh, it wasn't anything odd to them. It was okay. It was acceptable. I mean, I can continue worshiping Olodumare. You guys just call him by a different name. And then you guys had this other character named Jesus. And I'm fine with Jesus too. I have no problem with Jesus. Because at the end of the day, all of these are different manifestations of Ashe. Mm-hmm. Right? So I, 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 can, I have no issue. So this whole idea that, ha- that grew in the literature and that grew, be- became very popular in most people's understandings of syncretism, that syncretism was basically camouflage, something that I myself believed at one point in time, I think is false. Mm-hmm. I think there was more than just camouflage involved in this process, right? I think there was an understanding because when you look at the parallels established between the Lukumi deities or the Brazilian Candomblé deities and the saints, you're going to see similarities in, in the hagiography, right? The, 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 the stories, the, the, what people relate, the knowledge that they have about the saint and the Orisha. For example, I had my greatest conflict when I was growing up was uh, being told that Shango and Santa Barbara were one and the same. Mm -hmm. St. Barbara is a 13 year old virgin who was decapitated by her dad. Shango was a God knows how old womanizer the way we perceive them anyway, right? Who represents the joy of life, including sex. St. Barbara was a martyr and a virgin, right? So in my mind, there was this conflict, uh, uh, a smug kid that grew up in Brooklyn, right? right? Even though I was in Cuba, I, I was in Brooklyn, the world at large, and I was like, what, what the hell are you guys talking about? I don't understand this. But then with the passage of time, when I look at St. Barbara and I look at some of the uh, uh, iconic symbols, the symbols associated with St. Barbara, lightning, uh, the, after her father decapitated, her lightning struck tower in which she was being hidden or kept under, or, or kept prisoner and, and, and burned it down. Right, and she had a she dressed in red and white, and she had a sword in her hand. I mean, all elements that we can easily associate with Shango, right? But there was also an understanding of what happened in the lives of some of these saints that may have had some similarity with with the beliefs about the Orishas. So it leads me to believe that the people that were brought to Cuba developed an understanding of, of Catholicism. It's not that, you know, they, they just chose a saint at random and placed it next to, to an Orisha and said, well, these are one and the same. We're going to cover Shango with St. Barbara. We're going to hide Shango behind St. Barbara. No, there was, there was actually thought, there were, there were processes where they, there was analysis to a degree, right, of mm-hmm. what these powers were, what these symbolisms were. And also, and I'm sorry if I'm driving this nail too much, but miscegenation, right? The, the, these beliefs about the relationship between saints and orishas and, and, and Catholicism and Lukumi and Catholicism and Candomblé is, is a product of miscegenation. Uh, I had a, a sociology teacher uh, uh, Teresita Pedraza, who would always stress this point, and I, I, I strongly believe what Teresita argued. Uh, the reality is that there were more women, more African women, who obtained their freedom, who were manumitted, than men. Men were more valuable, more useful on the field, so on and so forth. And there was a greater number of European men on the island, right, as opposed to European women. So it was quite common to have 
unions, not marriages, but unions, where black women lived with white Europeans, right? And this whole notion of advancing the race was actually imposed on Africans, right? They, they, they were led to believe that, you know, whitening of the skin meant advancing and growing and prospering as a people. So this child is born from these unions, okay? The, what we call in Cuba and in Brazil and in the Americas, el mulato, right? The mulato, the mulata. This child who is a product of two uh, open quote, close quote races, <clears throat> inherited the philosophies, the beliefs, the ideas of both his parents. It was very easy for this child to see his father worshiping Mary, the universal feminine from a Catholic perspective, and his mother worshiping Oshun, or Yemaya, worshiping the, the deities that represent the universal fem fem feminine from our perspective. So this child could very easily identify Oshun as our Lady of Charity, and Yemaya is Our Lady of Regla, without a problem, mm -hmm. because he saw the presence of the divine in both and was taught the ways of life of both his parents. Mm -hmm. And I believe, and this was Teresita's argument as well, I believe that this was stronger than the alleged camouflage theory and the alleged imposition theory where these people were forced to worship these deities, these Catholic deities. Right. Um, not that there weren't, uh, there was a, um, a cardinal, uh, a bishop, I think, um, Morelli Santa Cruz, who in the early 19th century went to all the Cuban uh, cabildos. Cabildos were fraternities established for people of African origin where they could dance. Allegedly, they were dancing and having a good time, but in reality, they were practicing religion. Yes, <clears> and that's maybe where we see more camouflage, right? That's maybe where the camouflage idea began. Because Morel, he, I, I, he, he quickly understood that what was taking place inside of these cabildos was not necessarily public dance and celebration. He understood very quickly that it was religion. Mm -hmm. And especially when you see somebody mounted or possessed by an orisha, you, you definitely know there's more than just having a good time. Uh, <laughs> and Morel is the one that took a Catholic saint to each one of these cabildos and established it as the patron saint of the cabildo. So there you see imposition and there you see the possible need right, to syncretize or to at least outwardly uh, appear to be adoring the Catholic deity. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, I, I look at them as deities as well. <clears throat> um, this is a very historic, a very complex historical process, uh, but not odd, not strange. Mm -hmm. I mean, Catholicism did exactly the same thing in his origins. How many uh, Catholic saints weren't actually deities uh, from other practices and other cultures before the, uh, the, the Catholics incorporated them? Sure. St. Christopher being the perfect example. Well, and you see it in different parts of the world. When I was in India and I was traveling around, and, you know, like meeting people and staying in their homes or whatever, you know, go in and here would be Ganesh and then there'd be the Buddha and then there'd be Jesus and then there'd be Sai Baba or whoever other person. And when I asked them about it, they're just like, they all have blessings to offer. So we're all, we're, they're all welcome, you know? Yeah. So, and I'm sure in other parts of the world, we see a very similar process, right? Definitely. And, 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 and the critics who fail to understand or, fail, or who don't want to understand, because in some cases, many don't. Uh, um, you know what? I went to Yoruba land. I was in Aguadu. Uh, what was it? Before the 2019, I believe, before the COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. March of 2019. 
and I was involved in a Yoruba ritual, right? In a seer's house, a Yoruba seer's house. Okay. With uh, scriptures all over the walls of her shrine room, right? And a ceremony that involved with, that began with the Our Father. And then the sacrifice of a lamb. Right. <laughs> so... There's syncretism in Yoruba land as well. I, I, I hate to, you know, be the, the, the pin in people's bubbles, but there's syncretism there as well. And it's part of human nature. Well, I, w- I wonder how much of it, you know, I mean, obviously there's a general move to syncretize, <laughs> but there's also the, the idea that the historical fact really that at one point this town would be centered around Shango, this town would be centered around Olokun or Oshun or Yamaya or whomever. And so, it wasn't like there was a, a, a truly unified set of this is this is the order, this is the primary focus. But depending on where you grew up, you'd be, you know, uh, you would you would follow the religion of your parents and your village and so on, and would have much more of that emphasis on one aspect, with with the other ones being around or some of the other ones being around as needed, right? And and you know what, uh, uh, at the expense of being crucified pardon the pun, um, J.D., what is it, J.D. White Peel, the uh, British uh, historian, has argued that religion, per se, in, in from a Yoruba perspective, took shape in the late 18th, early 19th century. There was no unified system of worship. There was the local worship of the local deities, right? Yes. And eventually, it is, it's quite possible that this encounter with people from other areas of the world, primarily Europeans, may have created this whole idea of a pantheon that we have today, right? Uh, if you look at the history, uh, there's an excellent book called uh, Heo Lorisha by Mackenzie, I forgot his first name. Uh, excellent research, excellent documentation of, uh, um, he reviewed uh, the, uh, memoirs and the journals of Christian uh, missionaries in Yoruba land in the 19th century. And it's very clear from their, at least from their perspective, from what they wrote, from what they documented, biased as it may have been, it's very clear that there was no uniform system of worship. The move to the Americas, right, may have Establish that as a primary necessity in order for the traditions to survive, mm-hmm. right? right? Because because what we see in Cuba and and I guess in other places too, right, um, was that at a certain point there was a change in protocol and practice in order to cement the traditions, in order to make sure that there was uh, enough representation of different Orisha and around the preservation of of traditional aspects that might have been much more separate before that, right? Like the Definitely of so. receiving, you know, when you're crowned, you, you receive Shango and Yamaya and Oshun and Obatsala and so on. This is part of a, a, one of those cultural and historical transformations to preserve that knowledge, right? To preserve those traditions. Definitely so. No argument there, right? And it, and it, and it gives birth to this whole notion of a pantheon, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. To this day, the, the idea of pantheon in Yoruba land is not as clear, not as cut and dry as it is in the Americas, right? 
And again, it not only happens with, with the Yoruba traditions, it also, it's, it's very clear with Haitian Vodun. There is a pantheon, right? Uh, which did not necessarily exist in 19th century Yoruba land. And, and, and Cuba is perfect evidence for that. There were people who brought specific deities to the island. For example, Olokun and the Geledeco arrived to Cuba with one priestess, Nyaine Garcia Yeyetolokun. And this priestess was the one that expanded the worship of this deity in Cuba, right? So Olokun becomes part of this pantheon. Um, Batalao, Dua, Yegua, what we call Eguado deities were brought by a particular group. And there were two important migrations to Cuba. Uh, there was the group of people brought to the island in the latter 18th century, which were primarily Eguado. And then the people who followed after the decimation of Oyo circa 1825, 1830 or so, which were primarily Oyo, but there were other ethnic groups present at the time. So each one of them brought a different contribution, right? Uh, the people from Oyo brought a specific drumming style that it was not available in the island until they arrived, which was the Bata drum. Yeah. So again, this whole creation of, of a pantheon of a group of deities, you know, as, as we worship today, is definitely a product of the 19th century, 19th and 20th century. Yeah, well, and you also get the, the people from the Congo, right? And also uh, the Arara, right? Coming as well as a separate group. And, and, and the Igbo to bring the Abakwa traditions as well, right? Yeah. So, and many people, at, at first there were cultural clashes. The Congos and the Lukumis did not get along. Eventually they all learned to survive because there was a greater fall. Right, which was the system that was in place that, you know, affected all of them. Mm -hmm. So, but now in Cuba, as as we were talking earlier, this whole this whole idea of Ashir was a perfect example. You have Cubans who practice Congo tradition, Palo Bantu practices. You have Cubans who practice Bantu, who are Abakwa, which is the Igbo tradition. You have people who are Lukumi, who have influence from the Arara, from the ancient Dahomey people who came to the island, and on top of that, who are good Catholics who practice Cardesian spiritism. Right. <laughs> right? And it's okay. Yeah. The reality is that it works. <laughs> you know, we're not telling everybody do what we do. You know, you guys want to believe just in Jesus and 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 and, and the image of, of a God who tells you don't worship any other gods but me? That's fine. Mm -hmm. Right? We don't. We believe that there is more to the world than just this one deity. There are many ways to approach God, many energies that represent God in the world, and it's fine to worship them or deal with them or, you know, yeah. make them part of our life. Hey, folks, I just want to jump in here for a second and remind people that the Hermit's Lamp is also a store. So I have an online store and an in-person store in Toronto that sells over 400 tarot decks, 300 kinds of crystals, and incense, incense holders, candles, oils, and all the magical goodies you might want for whatever, everything is sourced to the best of my ability to be authentic. And we offer pickup or in-store shopping when it's not COVID in Toronto. And we offer delivery just about anywhere in the world. So do me a favor. Next time you're thinking about stuff, drop by the hermitslamp.com, 
check it out. See if we've got something you need there because I always appreciate that support. Well, and I think that, you know, talking about this sort of uh, cultural changes and this sort of uh, mixing and adjusting and changing that happens, you know, over time, to me, it reminds me of the importance of lineage too, right? Oh, yes. Because if we're, if we're understanding that there is this sort of uh, progression over time, <laughs> not, not evolution, but change and progression, then understanding who we come from, right? Who that lineage is, is one of the things that helps us navigate a lot of stuff around this tradition, right? Well, the lineages also maintain the, uh, the ethnic differences in practices, right? which yeah, linked exactly. us to those specific groups you know, and their distinct practices. Those of us who descend from the Eduardo lines uh, uh, may have minor differences in our approaches, in our, in our ceremonies, in our rituals, than those who descend from the Oyo. And then the Arara people are totally different as well. And then within these ethnic uh, uh, groups, we also have the, 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 the principal lineage or the trunk and then the branches that began splitting off, right? And, and responding to historical uh, uh, circumstances as well, right? Because for example, we have the people who no longer shave the head of the initiate, but rather shave a small section of the center of the head mm. that responded to a historical need. There was great persecution at the beginning of the 20th century of all African practices in Cuba and people or practitioners or priests and priestesses were forced to go underground and hide their practices, something that occurred again after 1959, right? Where the revolution also uh, uh, established certain conditions, certain uh, proscriptions, mm -hmm. and uh, one of them being the initiation of children. So many people who practice these traditions for centuries, not for centuries, for generations, would initiate their children anyway, but in hiding. Mm. So again, the, the practices of the lineage may also refer, re, uh, reflect historical responses, right? Mm -hmm. To the circumstances that they had to deal with at the, at the moment in time. <clears throat> yeah. And the lineage also, you know, is a, is a connection to your, to your ashe, right? And to, to your, your ancestry. To your ancestry, right? You know, mm -hmm. because it's not just, I get to join the club, right it's that you become part of that lineage yourself right you become part of that family at that point which i think is something that people don't necessarily understand the scope of that you know odisha is like a big family and once you and this is something that's actually losing a lot of, of uh, uh importance in our day and age mm -hmm. but once you join an odisha ile an odisha house once you find a godparent you're not just a client off the street who the godparents sell religion to, right? You're a part of the family. And that connects you with everybody else who's part of that family generations back. Yeah. So this whole notion of lineage, right? Because one of, the, one of the greatest things that, one of the greatest ideas that we have that we sustain to this very day is that once you're initiated, you don't die. The body may die. But the soul, the mind, the memory of the individual continues to live through its descendants, right? 
our religious DNA, so to speak, right? We continue to transmit it generation to generation. Um, you're in a family. You're a member of a family. Uh, as a godfather, I'm, I'm your religious father. As a, you know, as, a, as, as your godmother, as your religious mother, you have siblings, you have aunts, you have uncles. So this whole idea of lineage not only bonds us as a people, keep, tries to keep us together as a people, as it connects us to our origins and to our ancestors who we maintain or keep alive through our worship and to our veneration and, and our memory of them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess that it highlights how important the community <laughs> is, right? You know, this is, you know, and I know as a person who lives way up here in Canada, this is a, a religion that, that is very difficult to practice away from all the people who practice it, you know? It's very challenging to not have uh, access to that family and connection to that family and so on. Yeah. Canada continues to be a growing community and, and it's, it's had a lot of hurdles to overcome. I mean, I, I, there have been priests there trying to establish practice since at least the 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I don't know why the, it's, they're having such difficulty there. I, well, climate is, an, is a problem. Uh, um, being able to import certain things like plants, for example, from the tropics is an issue there. Um, but they're also, I think it's a very small community. Um, I don't think many Caribbeaners are, are lured into the cold of, of Canada, right? I think most people look, yeah, they can accept New York, which is not as cold, I, I think, right? Or other cities in the country, but most people look for similarity also in and the United States opened more doors to people from Cuba than, than any other country until recent times. Mm -hmm. That's also a reason. I, I, I still think that, you know, Canada will be an issue uh, for other factors that you and I are familiar with as well, right? Mm -hmm. uh, especially sacrifice, animal sacrifice in your region is not that well looked upon. Mm -hmm. I don't know. We don't know what the future holds in store for us. So. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, I think actually, uh... What we what we see here is that you know if people are moving that that ahead, it's actually the you know uh, <clears throat> Hindu people and other traditions that you know uh, also use a lot of that kind of stuff in certain practices. You know when you go to the live animal markets, it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a worldwide affair for who all you're looking at when you're there. You know, mm. so, yeah, for sure. So. Maybe, maybe as we're kind of reaching the end of our time here, let me, let me ask you this. So I know, and you know, we've written about it, we've talked about it, that, that one of the other challenges for people who are drawn in this direction, but who didn't necessarily grow up in it, is how do you, how do you avoid these frauds? How do you avoid the challenges? How do you uh, learn who to who to look to or how to look to you know lineages or other things you know what are what are some like red flags for you and what are maybe some things that are um markers that the person should might consider uh exploring that connection more you know sadly the lack of structure uh -huh. right the approximately century and a half of persecution, right? Of, of stigmatizing these traditions, of uh, uh, accusing us of, and accusing all African traditions of atrocities that we are incapable of committing. 
uh, um, has created this air around us that as a people, we are very distrusting. Therefore, structures are not necessarily accepted. We lost the structures that we had with the cabildos, right, in, in Cuba. For many reasons, cabildos eventually lost ground. So we, though we have roots, right, in, in, in organization, that's also been lost. Persecution made us go into hiding. We became ostriches, right? And put our heads in the ground. And maybe we were priests and priestesses, but we denied it because we were afraid of the stigma. So we were afraid of the police, right? And after 1959, afraid of the revolutionary forces. So all of this created a very inhibited mind frame. And because of that, we have no churches, we have no structures, we have no legal representation because we still have not made the major effort that that it requires to do so there is an, a very admirable attempt here by neko pichardo who has worked for decades uh trying to establish that my own work all modesty aside the reality is that the vast majority of Lorishas are not interested in establishing a church because their churches are in their home that's where they feel they worship and period and nobody's going to change that mind frame because it, it took it, it was created and it's been in existence for over a century at least right so what constitutes what are the warning signs as you would say what are the red flags that we need to look to well i'm very wary of those people who put on drama who put on the show shows right oh i'm the best there is yeah nobody's the best there is right those things as soon as you see that that should be a red flag immediately excessive uh um uh rituals or, or rituals that are you know, made to impress. I think the drama in, in many cases, yes, there's beauty to Orisha. There is there is devotion and we give the, the Orishas the best that we have available, the best that we can afford. But we also need to remember that we do so today because we have the financial uh, possibilities. Our people were very poor, were very humble. Uh, they, they came, they lived in homes with dirt floors and, you know, uh, uh, none of the luxuries that we have today. When we you were in Kansas, right? I, I got to see, you know, some yeah. of the most religious people I know, you know, and their Orishas are in the Sapara. They came in 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, right? Maybe very maybe with a maybe with a string of beads on them, and that's it, right? You know, basically, basically, very humble Saperas, very humble vessels, right? Today, well, you know, I mean, I, I see if I if I live in 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 a, in, a, in a home that's that's nice, that's flushed or whatever, you know, I'm gonna have my orishas in a nice style as well, in a nice comfortable way as well. But I'm not gonna forget my origins, right? Uh, and, and and I know my shango, I call it the uh, my my the bowl vessel for shango, I call it the Olympic pool because it's it's uh, what four feet tall and, and about uh -huh. three feet wide. And God, that was not my doing. My godson gave that to shango, but nonetheless, you know, uh, our worship and our veneration and and the way we represent our orishas right is a reflection of our lifestyle yeah. right so that's acceptable i can see that but once it's excessive and that is also noticeable right yeah. once there's drama once yeah. you ask a question and your the response is that you don't need to know that right now or that's not for you to know if it's not a question about ritual practice that's not the act, the adequate response, you know. Yeah. If a godson is asking, Padrino, what do I have to do? You know, what is required of me? 
you need to sit down and tell them that. And the vast majority of these charlatans that are out there abusing people don't know how to do this. Right? Yeah. No, this is the way it is, and period. Yeah. Those are red flags, you know. Um, there are other things that, you know, we can talk about uh, that would be a little difficult. Uh, uh, a sexual abuse, all right? Disrespect of any sort. That should be the first red flag, yeah. and that yeah, happens think, a lot. And I think you know, if if you uh, you know, there there is there there is, and there never should be there should there never should be any sexual anything between godparents and godkids. It's a hard line, right? There's your no godparents are your parents. There's nothing in our religions in our in our ceremonies that necessitate that, right? You know, um, and yeah, I think that that idea of respect, right? You know, for me, one of the ideas that I think is really significant is unlike our parents of origin, right? And and maybe maybe Ori and our destiny say we don't have a choice about who crowns us, but we'll put that aside for a moment and say, mm-hmm. unlike our parents of origin, we have some choice about who we're going to build this relationship with, right? right. And if they don't respect you, if they don't, you know, if, if you're you know, if your life and their life don't line up in certain ways, right? If they have uh, biases or whatever that don't suit who you are, keep looking. You'll find people, right? I agree with that. There's no reason to to uh, put up with things, you know. And I, I recently was talking to somebody who who realized afterwards that that, that that they were talking Spanish and making fun of the person while they were doing something for them. And I'm like, that's unacceptable, right? Because even if we're having a connection that's more like a client, less like a family, you know, as a lot of these sort of begin, if there's not that respect there, where's that ever going to come from, right? So, But so. The, the respect has to be mutual, though. And this yeah. is another issue as well. I am not going to accept anybody coming in to seek my religious guidance or my uh, advice, right? Or my uh, relationship with me as their godparent and come and impose their ways on me either. Because, and a lot of people, and especially today, with the access, greater access to literature and greater access to the internet and all of the nonsense that's being published out there by people whose intentions are highly questionable at times, right? Uh, They also lay the groundwork uh, uh, for those people who come to you and they already swear they know more about the religion than you do, right? Yeah. So they want to tell you how you have to do things for them or how you have to approach things for them. And you know what? I tell them, there's the door. Yeah. This is my practice. And if you're looking at me as your godfather, you're going to have to follow my tradition, my way, the way I know. And the day that I don't know, I'm honest enough to tell you, I don't know. Let me find out. Sure. Yeah. Right. So it, it, it is a two-way street, though. Yeah. And, sure. and it can be very difficult. And especially so more so nowadays because of the greater access to information or disinformation that is available through social media i think i think there's a, a saying that i like a lot which applies to this which is uh you know uh 10 minutes with a with a wise person is better than reading 100 books you know mm. and i think that when we're talking about these traditions the books are helpful i read a lot of books you write some great books you know there's Thank stuff you. out there um but even at that, those are just a small piece of the conversation, right? And I think that one of the things that becomes really important is that these religious traditions become very personal, 
not just in terms of the relationship, but also in terms of the advice, right? Because the advice for me is different than the advice for somebody else. It's different than the advice for other people because there's not a simple thing that you could write in a book and say, oh, okay, this is the, this is the standard for everything. Some, right? But a lot of them are, are not so universal. They're dependent on circumstances and Odoo and Arisha and so on and so on, right? So it's, yeah, it's not as, uh, it's not as clear cut as that. Most books, you know, some well, of them are just a nightmare. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know. Despite the fact that I have published uh, several several books on the on the tradition, uh, um, literature and social media do not replace hands-on practice. Yeah. You have to be present. You have, and this is one of the issues with places where there aren't large uh, practicing communities, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, it experience is built upon practice here. You, you, you can know and you can have all the theory you want on hand and all and, and read all my books and everybody else's books and visit every website and every social uh, Facebook page that exists. But if you're not out there, if you're not exposed, if you're not dealing with practitioners, mm -hmm. you know, frequently, mm -hmm. all you have is theory. Yeah. You know, you have to have, you have to gain experience by practicing. Well, maybe that's a good place to end it and say, that's because otherwise I'll just keep you here all day talking about stuff. <laughs> um, if people want to uh, find these books, if people want to find where you're hanging out online, um, where should they come and check you out? Okay, my website is eleda.org, E-L-E-D-A. And uh, you go to the publication section and all of my books are available through there. My books are also available on amazon.com um they're not available in botanicas uh, so those are the two places where you'll find my publications at this point there are some of my books have been purchased by many of the uh, libraries in the country as well oh and there is a uh, bookseller in england who sells my books also uh, blackwells i believe is the name of it maybe i'm wrong with the name um but they're also available in, in england at least for those who are interested perfect and you also have a Facebook group. Yes, I have uh, several Facebook groups. I conduct seminars for priests and priestesses on Facebook as well. Uh, my Facebook is also eledda.org. And uh, I use, uh, and I have a page for the, uh, for the publications uh, section called eledda.org publications. So all of those are available on Facebook, Instagram, and, and, and um, so uh, the internet. Perfect. Well, thank you for making time today to hang out. You're very welcome. All right. Great moment. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You have a good day. And I wish all your listeners the, that they find the path that they seek in life. It doesn't necessarily have to be Odisha Olukumi religion. One needs to find a path. One needs to have a goal, no matter what faith you use to approach it. Perfect. All right, my friends. That wraps it up for the spring season. What do you think of the new format? Drop me a line and let me know. Who do you think I should have in the fall series? Drop me a line and let me know. And do me a favor. Support the podcast. Links are in the show notes for it. And spread the word. Give it a rating. Share it amongst your friends. Put it up on social media. All these things help continue to move the podcast forward and keep it alive and vibrant. All right. I'll be back in the fall. But don't worry. I'll be around with other things in between. So make sure you're following me. Uh, on social media somewhere. Instagram's the best place at the Hermit's Lamp to uh, see what else is going on 
or jump on my newsletter through the website as well. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.